Well, good morning again. Welcome, everyone. Glad you're here. You glad to be here? And worship has been great already. It's been awesome. Thank you, Craig and our team. Uh, take your Bibles. Turn to the book of Numbers. We believe that all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is powerful. However, it seems at times as if some Scripture passages are challenging. They're challenging for us to read. They're challenging for us to get through. Uh, they present a challenge to us. And so this summer, what we're doing is, I've entitled this The Untouchables, um, mainly because a lot of times we just don't want to look at these books. Um, very few sermons are preached from these books. As I said last week, how many yearly Bible study readings have died in the books of Leviticus and Numbers? Uh, we get there, we're going strong through Genesis, Exodus. We hit Leviticus and it hits us back. And so hopefully last week when we looked at Leviticus, you saw just the power of God in that book, the, the redemptive uh, call of God on our lives. And today we're going to look at Numbers, the book of Numbers. And uh, really, Numbers is a little different than some of the books we're looking at because there are a lot of narrative passages in the book of Numbers. As I walk through it, a little bit this morning, you're going to see there, there's powerful story after powerful story in the book of Numbers. One of the most famous passages, uh, uh, the high priestly blessing is found in the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Found in the book of Numbers. It's a book of promise. It's a book of blessing, it's a book of rebellion, it's a book of sin, it's a book of perseverance. And so today I want to look at some of the, I'm going to call them pictures or shadows that are found in the book of Numbers. In other words, if, and I've used these illustrations before because they're so good. Uh, you know, it says in the book of Hebrews, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. The law, the high priestly system, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, they are all shadows of a reality that was coming. Hebrews makes it clear that that reality is found in Jesus Christ, that if you were to study my shadow right here, I mean, if you were to come up and that's all you had was this shadow, you would have some idea maybe if you understood science of my height and possible weight and roughly maybe what I look like, but there'd be tons of guesses. And some of those guesses might be right, and most of them would actually be, would, would be inaccurate. What we have pictured really clearly in the book of Numbers are some of the most powerful shadows of the coming of Jesus Christ, what he's going to do. And the reason we know that these are shadows of the coming of Jesus Christ, the ones I'm going to talk about today, is because Jesus tells us they're shadows. And Paul makes it clear these were Paul even says, these not just were shadows, these were him. Shadows can be very, very powerful, but they can also be very ensnaring if we're not careful. 
when Kathy and I were dating, um, which is over 31 years ago, uh, we went to Disney World. We're still dating. I was living in Florida. She came down and saw me. We went on a trip to Disney World. I took this picture. Uh, I put it on my desk. Yep, that's Kathy, in case you didn't, were wondering. And I put it on my desk, and isn't she cute? <laughs> and uh, so I had this picture on my desk. But then on June 18th, 1988, her father walked her down the aisle and uh, handed her her off, so to speak, to me, and we got married, and the last 31 years, we've, we've lived as, as husband and wife, and it's been, in general, really good. Uh, we've had our ups and downs. You know, you have five kids, you have good days, you got bad days, you know, you understand, but in general, been really, really good, but what if I said at some point, you know, I don't know about living with the reality of Kathy. I think I'll go back and live with the picture. I mean, to me, that's just crazy. Uh, the joy of life has been lived with the reality of her. A picture is just a shadow. What if we said at some point, you know, I've got the reality of Jesus, but I'd rather live with the shadows the religious activities, the stuff. If we're not careful, sometimes we get so enamored with the shadows that we forget that they are pictures of a coming reality that is found in Jesus. Today I want to look at these shadows, but I don't want us to become so enamored with them that we love the shadows more than the person. Do you understand my point? By the way, if you want to read a real great treatise on this, go read Plato's The Cave, where he uh, discusses this whole idea of people who all they get to experience is the shadow, and then the shadow becomes what's real, and even when they're freed, they'd prefer to go back to the shadow because it's, the light is so challenging for them. Numbers is a book of shadows and pictures and realities of the coming of uh, Jesus Christ. Numbers bogs many people down when they go to read through it. Well, because there's a lot of numbers. Uh, the first five or six chapters. By the way, I, I, my, the teacher in me wants to come out and preach the whole book of Numbers, so I'll try and go quickly so that I don't get too bogged down myself as I teach it. But the, the, the nation of Israel is freed out of slavery in Egypt. They come through, you know the Exodus, they're at Mount Sinai, God gives the Ten Commandments, and then you find them at the beginning of the book of Numbers, still around the mountain. God uh, tells Moses to take a census of how many people there are, count them, count the tribes, count the people in the tribes, and so that's what he does at the beginning of Numbers, he counts and he organizes the tribes for their journey. They they they. Dedicate the tabernacle. They get it ready to go. They get ready for their journey. We looked at Leviticus. How is God going to dwell in their midst? The tabernacle tells them. So the whole beginning of the book of Numbers is about um, the organization of the trip. You know, I'm going to go on a trip here in a couple of weeks um, where I'm going to go to... Uh, Olivia and I are leaving in uh, two weeks to go to Ethiopia uh, we're going to be there for about two weeks uh, with the Rosses. 
Uh, I'm going to be teaching. She's going to be um, shadowing Nate. Shadowing, how funny. Uh, shadowing Nate. <laughs> Nate Cheryl. Every day I'm getting more boxes for me to bring to them. <laughs> Packages. And I'm, I said to Kathy, you know, we need to start getting this stuff organized. I'm not even sure I'm going to have enough space. Think of taking several million people on a journey across a desert and a people who have not really been all that well organized. Moses is given a picture by God about how they're supposed to organize. So they, they, they get it all together. They organize. They dedicate the tabernacle. It's a beautiful picture. And interspersed, there are, pa there are passages about rules and regulations, the priest, the worship time. So as you look through it, you can easily get bogged down in some of the various passages. But in between those are unbelievable narrative passages that speak of, of not only these shadows, but the people's rebellion against God, his perseverance and grace in their midst. And so just to give you some examples of the rebellion and disobedience that are found in the book of Numbers, you've got uh, Miriam and Aaron who uh, come up and rise up against Moses at one point, catch leprosy, they start speaking bad about him. They ha you have the people, one of the major passages in the book of Numbers is found in chapters 14 and 15 because they leave Mount Sinai and they go across the desert, which probably takes a month or two, three, we don't really know. It's not really that long. They get across the desert as the people, they come to the promised land, they send out the 12 spies, the 10 come back and say, hey, great land, God was right, but ooh, these people are so big. We're not going to be able to take them in the two Joshua and Caleb, they said, no, we can take the land. God promised us. He delivered us out of Egypt. He can give us the land, and the people rebel. And they're going to spend 40 years in that desert that took them two or three months to cross because of their, their rebellion. Korah, the sin of Korah, shortly after they rebel, and Moses says, we're going to loop around because God said. And Korah rebels, one of those earth-opening experiences when <laughs> get swallowed up. Um, Balak and Balaam, the talking donkeys, donkey stories in this book where they're cursed against, uh, curses against the Lord. Um, Moses even rebels. We're going to talk about that when he disobeys God in chapter 20 and strikes the rock twice. Lots of pictures of rebellion. Uh, these are just some of the major ones. The, and they're always grumbling, always grumbling uh, about how we came out of Egypt and now look at this, we got no water, we got no food, we got no nothing, you know, we're in this desert and blah, blah, blah. It, it is a wonder God just didn't wipe them out. But it's a, it's a picture of the perseverance of God. And in the middle of this are three pictures, three shadows that I want to talk about this morning that point to the reality that is Jesus Christ. Some important shadows. The first one is this, manna, manna. Manna is that, it started in Exodus, but you see it carried over in the book of Numbers and mentioned several times. Manna is that, well, we don't know what it is. As a matter of fact, the word manna means what is it? They didn't know what it was. They didn't know what to call it. It's this substance that came down, was there every morning. They went out and collected it every day. They could only collect enough to eat that day. 
and uh, except the day before the Sabbath, and they could collect twice. I mean, look at this. It's a miracle of God. If you collected too much on one day, it's spoiled by the next. Except the day before the Sabbath, you could collect two days, and it lasted two days. I mean, tell me God is not unbelievable in his miraculous, uh, in his miraculous work. I mean, every morning there's an expiration date. expires tomorrow. On, stamped on the bottom of the manna, the what is it. So they collect it every day. But they get tired. I mean, right at the beginning, they're only in the desert for a couple of months. They're, I'm so tired of this. What is it? I don't want it anymore. What I want is some meat. I want, to get some, I want some meat to eat with my what is it. And so God says, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And just in Numbers 11, quail comes in to the point they're like, we... So much meat, and you got to think, two million people, enough quail to feed two million people, several million, it's, it's incredible. Comes in, they've got meat in their teeth, so to speak, to the point they're like, oh, we don't want any meat, we'll go back to the what is it. God provides manna for every day, even through their rebellion. I mean, it's a miracle. I mean, they... It was only, you know, he, he wants to get them across the desert, get them into the promised land where they're going to have everything they want. But here they're going to have it for 40 years. Up until the day they cross over the Jordan to take the promised land, they're going to have manna provided from God. The water that comes from the rock in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. The first time God tells Moses, go strike the rock, water comes from, I mean, again, <clears throat> I'm going to get too bogged down because i got to preach the, what this all looks like. But it's so unbelievable. They're in a desert. God says to Moses, go to this one rock and hit it, and water's going to come out. Enough water out of a rock in a desert to take care of millions of people. Then later in Numbers 20, God says to Moses, go speak to the rock. And water's going to come out. Well, by this time, Moses is just fed up with the people. And in his frustration, he goes out and he strikes the rock twice. Water comes from the rock and takes care of the people. But because of his disobedience, God says to Moses, you won't, you'll lead the people to the promised land, but you won't take them in. Has that story challenged you at times? I mean, Moses should say to God, could have said to God, look at all I did for you. I've been putting up with this people. I've been going through this. I went and got them free. You know, I was there with the Ten Commandments. I've been taking care of the tabernacle, counting people, doing all this stuff, prophesying, governing. One mistake. I strike the rock when you tell me to speak to it. And why was that such a big deal? We'll look at it in just a second. Finally, the bronze serpent. Later in Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, the people, they mouth off again. They get to a place, they say, you know, we get, we're short on water and we hate this, what is it? Uh, I'm just tired of it. And God sends fiery serpents into their midst that start biting them. People start dying. Moses intercedes. God says, put a bronze serpent on a pole, hold it up, and when the people look at the pole, they will be saved. They'll be delivered. They'll be healed. 
Again, is this not incredible to think, <clears throat> okay, these, these snakes are killing us, so let's bronze one and put it on a pole because, you know, the snake, it's a sign of the devil. That's why I believe every snake should have its head cut off. You know, it's just, it's demonic. I'm just kidding, but I think so. Um, you know, I don't stop to look at stripes and colors, and I'm just, I panic. But it's interesting that they put one on a pole, and that's what they're to look to, and they're going to be saved. Of all the imagery that God could have chosen, a snake to me seems a fascinating choice. How are these uh, shadows, so to speak, in the desert? How are these pictures? Let's walk through them real quickly. First is this. Jesus came down. Just as manna came down from heaven and fed the people, Jesus came down. One day, one day Jesus feeds a great multitude. Feeding of the 5,000, 4,000. It's one of the stories where he feeds a huge crowd. Miraculous feeding. Next morning, well, during the night, Jesus leaves the people. He walks on the water, crosses over, gets to another place. The people wake up the next day and say, where's Jesus? Where'd Jesus go? And they hear, oh, he's over on the other side. So they just jump up and run over. Well, Jesus, it says, kind of sees into their heart that what they're looking for is just another meal. They want another miraculous sign. They want, him, they want to be fed again. But not spiritual food, they want food food. Hey, he fed us yesterday, I bet he can do it again tomorrow. This is a good deal. Jesus tells them not to work for food that can spoil, but for the kind that brings eternal life. And to that question they ask, well, what kind of work should we be doing? Jesus says, when you do the work of God... You're believing in me. They respond, well, if you want us to believe in you, then do another miraculous sign. Give us some more food. They loop right on around to back to the food again. If you want us, we'll do that work, but I tell you what, give us another sign. Show us more. And then they go on, how about more food? Like the kind of food Moses gave the people in the desert. To which Jesus says, and I think he's correcting their bad theology, hey, it wasn't Moses who gave you that food. That food came down from God. That food was provided by my Father who is in heaven. Now, I'm, I'm loosely interpreting this, narrating this passage, but you can go, go read about it. And then he moves on to the spiritual, and he says... The Father, he gives true bread, which is life-giving bread, and they say, okay, that's the kind of bread we want. They're still thinking food, but he says, we're going to get life-giving bread. And here's what he says in John chapter 6, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still you do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I am the one who has come down from heaven. And he goes on and says, I tell you the truth. Same chapter. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There's so much in this passage I wish I could get to, but it's, it's so rich where he's saying, I won't lose anyone. I'll raise up everyone that God gives me. If you'll eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, I will raise you. It's a promise of the security of God of the security that's found in Jesus Christ. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Here's what I want to get to. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. What bread? Him. He's saying that manna, it was just a shadow of what my Father was given you. I am the reality. I am the bread of life. Come to me and eat and drink. Now, we think, and this causes the people who are hearing this whole cannibalistic thing that goes off in their heads, and he's not saying eat. But at the Lord's Supper, which we're going to picture later, he clearly demonstrates the bread and the cup as being his presence, his spiritual presence that gives, that gives life. In other words, we receive him totally and completely. We receive of him and we receive his truth. There's so much in this picture of manna. We could do an entire study and series on it. It's got to be collected every day. You can't kind of build up for the future. You got to receive it every day. I mean, isn't there a part of taking up your cross daily, feeding on the bread of life every moment? You can't like take it today and say, I'll come back to it in like a year or two. It's a continual walk with the person of Jesus every moment of every day. And it has to be received. There's a, a famous uh, author, commentator, James uh, Boyce Montgomery, and he tells a story about this Scottish guy who got on a ship, a steamship, to go from Scotland to America, and he bought his ticket, and he got on the, the boat, and he, he brought you know, his food with him on the boat, and he, he's eating his food, and those cru the, it wasn't a cruise. It was a, you know, it was a transatlantic journey. And so he's on his way across, and the day before they get to America, he's, he's, he, feel, he realizes his food has spoiled. And he's been trying to save money, but he needs to go in, and, and so he decides to go to the dining area and buy a meal. 
He gets there, and what he discovers is that the food was included with the ticket. All along, he could have been dining rather than having his saltine crackers try and carry him through this long journey. God has provided everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. I mean, think about it. That's what Peter says. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. The question isn't, is it there? The question is, will you receive it? Will you take of it? And will you take of it every single day? Because it's, it's life-giving. Jesus is the bread of life. God provides. By the way, I could go on to this point that, that <clears throat> Jesus is enough. You don't need anything else. Jesus is enough for everything that you need. So Jesus comes down. Like manna came down from heaven, Jesus comes down. Also, Jesus comes in. Jesus comes in. <clears throat> the water that comes from the rock, the rock itself. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud in, in the sea. You remember the story, they came through the Dead Sea on dry land and then God's cloud, pillar of fire, cloud, by it, it guided them. He's saying all of that has a picture of baptism and they all went through that and they were all a part of it. He goes on and says, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. He's now referring to manna and the water from the rock. And then he goes, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was, was Jesus. That rock was Jesus. Why was it such a big deal that Moses struck the rock the second time? If that rock indeed is Jesus, the picture that God gave Moses is this. Go to the rock and strike it, and out of the rock is going to come water. That rock is Jesus. That rock and the striking of the rock that's being pictured in that first instance is the cross. Christ is going to die on the cross, and Again, I'm not making this up. It's, you can see it in the Gospels. You can see it here in the writings of Paul. The rock is Jesus. So the rock was struck. It's a picture of what happened of Jesus on the cross. So what happens 50 days after the cross? Pentecost happens. What happens on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes. And how did the people receive the Holy Spirit? How did the Holy Spirit come? They, God, Jesus said, go and pray until he comes. They spoke. He came. Do you see the picture? God is painting a picture in the desert of what's going to happen. Christ is going to be struck. Water's going to come. The rock is going to be spoken to and water is going to come. He, he is paying a picture. 
Why is it such a big deal that Moses struck the rock the second time? Because it disrupted the picture that God was providing. And if he left it unpunished, if he left it uncorrected, then people forever would be saying, you know, Jesus had to be crucified, but he was going to have to be, he'd have to be struck again. He'd have to be crucified again. He, if Jesus is the rock, then this shadow is disrupted. Now, you may be thinking, I think, Pastor, you're stretching this a little bit. Jesus says in John chapter 7, by the way, the Feast of Tabernacles, do you know what it celebrates? The wandering in the desert. It kind of, the whole Feast of Tabernacles is, and the highlight has to do with the water and the rock and everything that's taken place. Jesus, in John chapter 7, he says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. This picture is more than just, I mean, it is a powerful picture of, I believe, what God is wanting to do. There is only one place to come and eat and only one place to come and drink. The bread of life is found in Jesus. The water of life is found in him. And then if we come to him and eat and drink, streams of living water will flow. The Spirit. Come to him. Come to him and drink. You know, we sang this morning, um, the lion and the lamb. There's this great passage in uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair, where this, uh, this, this girl is named Jill. She's come to a, to a, a stream to drink. I should read you the whole thing, but I, I'm going to save time. Just summarize. You should go read it, the silver chair. She comes to the stream and drinks, and the lion, Aslan, is standing there. And she looks up at him and basically says, hey, uh, could you look away while I take a drink? She doesn't trust the lion. He goes, no, I, I'm not going to look away. And she goes, well, do you promise you won't, you won't devour me while I drink? He said, I make no promises. I've devoured whole kingdoms. What's well, a little girl? She, she finally says, well, I'm going to go find another stream. And he says to her, there is no other stream. Only here can you drink and find life. It is a powerful picture. You see, we think we come to Jesus on our terms. We think we come to him and say, you know, I'll just add a little water, a little bread to my life. And really what this scripture is saying, we come and all we have to say to him is, I'm thirsty. I am thirsty. I am hungry. But if we come to him, and in faith receive, we will receive sustenance, we'll receive spiritual life, we'll receive the water, the person of the Holy Spirit. I feel bad for Moses. I, I would have lost my temper a long time before Moses did, with all he had to put up with, but he picked the wrong time. And as a result, he didn't get to enter the land of promise. Because God wants his, even Moses, the greatest prophet who ever lived, 
couldn't come to God on his own terms. He had to come to God on God's terms. Come and drink. Jesus came down so that Jesus could come in, so that life could flow from us. Not our life, but his. Final point is this, and we're going to lead into communion with this truth, that Jesus is lifted up. Jesus is lifted up. One night a religious leader comes to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to get eternal life? Remember this from John chapter 3? And Jesus says to him, you've got to be born again. Now, we've heard this born again thing all our lives. But this is the first time it's ever been mentioned. You got to be born again. So the guy goes, Well, what do I got to do to be born again? Do I got to like go back into my mother's womb and so that I can be reborn again? I mean, he's, I'm, he's a smart guy. It's not a stupid question. I mean, he's trying to figure this out. What do I got to do to be born again? And Jesus says, I'm not talking about physical life, I'm talking about spiritual life. You were born physically, but now you need to be reborn spiritually. And he says, okay, how is this possible? What do I need to do to receive spiritual life? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify in what we have seen. But still, you people, do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe them. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly or spiritual things? No one has ever seen into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. And he's talking about himself. Jesus came down. Then he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of God must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I am that pole, that snake that was lifted up into the desert. Again, the whole snake analogy bothered me for a long time, trying to figure out the whole snake thing. The people complain, snakes come in, so they put one on a pole. But in the Israelite mind, snakes did symbolize sin. So why put sin on a pole and lift it up and have the people look at sin so they could be saved? Well, then the picture of Christ is this. He became sin so that I could have my sins forgiven. When Jesus was on the cross, he was. All the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, were placed on him. He became sin. And this picture goes on and on and on. If you think about it, Moses doesn't say... Or God doesn't say, hey, Moses, put this thing on the, uh, put this thing on the pole, lift it up. If you got bit once, look at it once. If you got bit twice, look at it twice. Three times, three times. He said, just, if you, no matter how many times you've been bit, look, and you'll be healed. And here's the picture it gives to me. No matter what sin you've done, no matter how many times, look to him and be saved. Because his What he did on the cross, he carried all the sin, past, present, and future. So your sin, no matter how big you think it is, is not so big that he didn't carry it on the cross. You can be forgiven. Receive him. Look to him and be saved. By the way, there's a whole history on this snake thing. That pole, a snake, becomes an idol to the people. 
they eventually have to destroy it because rather than looking at it as a shadow of a coming reality, they look of it as a thing to be worshipped. God is showing us stuff all the time that point to him. They are signs and wonders. What does a sign do? What is a sign supposed to do? Exactly. It's supposed to point you in a direction. We so often come to a sign and we say, oh, I love this sign. This is a great sign. I'm going to just stay here. I love this yield thing. I'm going to just stay and worship the yield sign. I mean, what it's supposed to do is say, here's how you're to proceed. Here's where you're to go. We don't come and worship signs. We don't come and worship pictures. We come and worship the reality that is Jesus. Why? Because the next verse of this is the most famous verse that people memorize first. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Manna in the desert. Jesus is the bread of life. Water from a rock. Jesus is the rock that was struck. And if we'll come to him and drink out of uh, streams of living water, will flow this meaning, the Spirit of God. Jesus is the bronze serpent that was lifted up on the cross to die for each and every one of our sins. Isn't that all? Does, it, does that not just overwhelm you? With the, with the glory of God that he would thousands of years before Jesus ever comes paint these pictures that are so clearly portrayed in him? I know that skeptics will say, you know what happened is, the New Testament authors, they took these things from the Old Testament and they just co-opted them and they made them. You could not possibly do all of these without people saying around, no, that, that didn't happen. When Jesus was a baby, his parents took him to the temple and we looked at this story at Christmas about how Simeon, as a baby, he lifts the baby up, baby Jesus, and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant, meaning himself in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He's saying, I hold in my hand that which God has promised for thousands of years. He, in some way, Simeon saw, I think, all the prep that God had done in order to get to this point. There's a famous book on Hebrews that, written by Hessian that says Simeon was holding that day the substance, the eternal reality in his arms. If you would like, he was holding revival in his hands. The victorious life in his arms. The answer to every man's need in his arms. We sometimes have the wrong mental picture of what revival is or what the victorious Christian life is likely to be and experience, or how our needs are going to be met. Very often we have in mind something that will be spectacular, sudden, 
powerful. If we have the wrong mental picture, we will never find what we are looking for. We need to see that Jesus is revival. And everything else we need, even though he appears small and his fresh working to be at first in one heart, maybe even our own. After all, revival has to begin somewhere, and beginnings are always small. But as if you do not see him as such, you will not even have that beginning. Indeed, in your anxiety for the answer, you may take up something else in your arms. You're, I don't know if I read that well. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, in your anxiety, if you're not careful, you may pick up something other than Jesus. A new emphasis, a new doctrine, a new experience. And though for a time you will feel yourself satisfied, you will ultimately find that even in that is but a shadow and it is not the substance. We come to worship him. We come to worship Jesus. When we come to this table, we're saying this bread that was broken, this cup, this blood that was shed, it was for the forgiveness of my sins. It comes so that I can have spiritual life. That's why the Lord's Supper is such a big deal. We come not to just do this religious thing, but we come to say, I receive. I come, I drink the water of life. I come, I eat the bread of life. I look to the cross where my Savior died and all my sins are forgiven. I want to encourage you today to receive life, to walk in life. We sang that song, the Son of God, high and lifted up. Indeed he was, so that we too, as he promised, he's not going to lose a single one so that we too can walk in him. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for these pictures, these shadows that you so vividly painted for us in the desert. We thank you that you are Jesus, the bread of life. We thank you that you are the water of life, that we can come to you and drink. We thank you that you were lifted up, that you willingly went to the cross and all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, are laid upon you so that we could look to you, be forgiven, and be saved. Lord, I pray right now as we as a people come to the table to receive this bread and this cup, that God, you'd work miraculously in our lives. For those who are here today and need a fresh touch from you, I pray that they would come and confess their thirst as they receive, and that as a result, out of, you, out of them, streams of living water, may they ask, may they speak and receive. For those today who, who need a burden lifted, a, a chain broken in their life, a habit that needs to come off of them, I pray, Lord, they would look to you and be saved. For those of you who for those who need physical healing, I pray that they would come 
and receive of the bread of life. Lord, we believe that everything we need is found in you. Some of it we'll receive today. Some of it we're going to receive tomorrow. Some of it we may not receive until eternity. But Lord, we walk in faith. And as we come to this table, we receive and walk. Lord, thank you. Spirit of God, move among us right now. In Jesus' name. We invite you to come to the table of the Lord. If you're new to fullness, we invite you to come and to receive. Take the bread, take the cup, take it back to your seat, and then we will we'll take it together because it's a picture of the body of Christ and the unity that is found in him. So come to the table of the Lord.